0: There are only two certainties in life, right? Death and taxes. That's, uh, we think it's from Ben Franklin, and actually it's a little bit older than that, but we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We certainly don't know what the next five minutes hold exactly. But we do know this, that each and every one of us, unless the Lord Jesus returns first, each and every one of us will die our hearts will stop beating, our lungs will stop breathing, our brains will stop working. That's the lot that all of us have, and and I'm not trying to be morbid or dark. I'm simply pointing out the uncomfortable truth that we all live with and that we're all aware of, that death comes to us all. And so, when you come to a story like this, which seems kind of random... Um, we wonder why in the world would John include these details about Jesus' burial and his death in this way. What does this have to do with anything? I mean, we we celebrate the crucifixion and we celebrate the resurrection, but we don't really talk much about the parentheses in between. What in the world? why, Why does every gospel writer spend time here? Why does it matter? And it matters for this reason. Jesus goes into the grave so that you don't have to. Jesus Jesus embraces death. He goes into the grave and faces death so that everyone who believes in Jesus can be set free from death, can be set free from the grave. And that may sound like, okay, well, yeah, duh. But let's dive into it a little bit. Uh, one thing that we, one of the reasons that John writes this, even really the main reason, is this: Jesus is really dead. He's not just, he doesn't just seem to be dead; he is in fact truly and really dead. And that's important because even in John's day, when John's writing this gospel, there were people who said, "Well, that didn't really happen." Jesus just seemed to be dead. Um, there's no way that the Son of God could actually die. So it just, or or others who would say, well, I think he probably just passed out. Jesus just fainted from the pain. That was how he actually came back. He came back to life. Really, he just woke up from his coma. Or, uh, and this is, for example, what uh, a good Muslim would believe, that Jesus did not in fact die on the cross, but that uh, God replaced him with someone else, that someone else was put in his place. And what John is saying is, no, none of those things are true. Jesus did really die. Of course, you can understand maybe why... People would fight that notion. Think about how foolish and ridiculous that sounds. I mean, Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the author of life, all-powerful. And so it grates against our natural human wisdom to say that such a person, that God himself could actually die. That's human, that's, it's, that's human wisdom to push back against that. God can't die, can he? But Jesus taught that he would die. John believed that he would die. All of the authors of the New Testament and the Christian church that followed them, to, to, be, to, to, to have a right understanding of Jesus is to acknowledge that, yes, in fact, the Son of God, the author of life himself, did really die. And here's why that matters. Because if Jesus doesn't really die then the crucifixion accomplished nothing. It was just brutality. If Jesus doesn't actually die, if He just just passes out, if He's just in a coma, then sin has not been paid for. Sin has not been atoned for. Right as Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In order for sin to be forgiven... Something has to die. Someone has to die. So if Jesus doesn't die, then the crucifixion paid for nothing. It was just brutality. And you and I are still in our guilt before a holy God. Jesus had to die in order for the crucifixion to actually finish the job that Jesus came to do. But there's more. If, if Jesus doesn't die and isn't really buried then the resurrection doesn't really happen. If Jesus isn't dead, then he can't come back to life. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that this is kind of, this is a cornerstone of Christian hope that if there is no resurrection, if there is no coming back from the dead, then we're then we Christians who believe that are to be pitied because we're hanging all of our hopes all of our new life, on something that didn't really happen. If Jesus just passed out on the cross from all the pain and then woke up in this tomb and somehow managed in his weakness to roll the stone away and get out, if that's, if that's what happened, then we need to just hang it up and head on home. Because if Jesus doesn't really die, then there is no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, there is no hope for you and there is no hope for you. For me, we cannot, right, because Paul tells us that the resurrection begins a new chapter. What Jesus does in the resurrection is he transforms death. He defeats death. And death is no longer a terminal end where we just disappear into nothingness. Death becomes the gateway into life. In order for that to happen, Jesus has to die. And he has to be raised again again. To new life. And so if that doesn't happen, we're still in our sins. But there's even a third reason for why this is important. And the book of Hebrews is what really teases this out. Jesus identifies with you at every step. Even in death. There is nothing about human experience that Jesus does not understand. Right, The book of Hebrews says we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. Jesus understands what it means to be human. You can't, you can't look at Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, you don't know what it's like to face death. Because he says, yeah, I sure do. I know what it means to die. I know, I know the fear of closing your eyes. And not waking up. Jesus identifies. Jesus has to die. Because if Jesus doesn't die, if he's not actually dead, then he's not identifying with us at every step. He's not like us in every way except without sin. And so Jesus dies, and we actually have... There's, there's a man, a perfect God-man on the throne in heaven who knows exactly what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to face temptation. He knows what it's like to be hated. He knows what it's like to be ashamed. And he knows what it's like to lose his life. And that is a comforting thought, that we have a God who understands us because he has embraced our experience to the full, even to the point of death. This is why it matters this is why we have to hold on to this truth. Right? This is why the Apostles' Creed, which we sometimes say and which is over eighteen hundred years old, why it affirms not just that Jesus crucified, was crucified, and was raised again, but right that he was crucified, dead, and buried. Because Jesus we are one with Jesus in that. Let's look at how John describes this happening and what it means to be washed in blood and water. John says it was the day of preparation. That's the day before the Sabbath. So the Jewish Sabbath was on Saturday. This was Friday. This was Good Friday. That Sabbath in particular was a high Sabbath, because this is Passover week, this major religious festival. And so... The Jews want the bodies taken off the cross. Remember, there's three. There are three people who were crucified: um, Jesus and two others. And Roman practice was just to leave the bodies on the cross until they until they died, which would take several days. Right? It was a long, torturous process of suffocating. Right? Of your of your body's strength failing, where you could no longer hold yourself up, and eventually you just suffocated. Right? Um, so it was Roman practice to leave the bodies on the cross and then just to let scavengers pick them clean. That's that was Roman. That was what the Roman practice was. Jewish law, on the other hand, Deuteronomy 21 says that anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed, and that they are not to remain on the cross or on the tree past evening. And so, for the Jews, it would defile the land if they were to leave these men on the cross. And so the Jews want them taken off, so the, the Jewish authorities want them taken off so as not to defile the land, not ruin the Sabbath, etc. Uh, it's just a little bit ironic that the Jewish authorities who want Jesus crucified so badly are still really interested in keeping the law of Moses when they missed its fulfillment completely. Um, and so, the, so what, the, what the Romans would do in special cases when they needed to take the bodies down quicker, when they needed their victims to die more quickly... They would smash their legs. They would take a a large metal mallet and they would go to each victim, they would go to each uh, condemned person and they would smash their legs because what what that would do is you needed your legs to keep pushing you up so that you could get a full breath because when you sag down on your arms, you couldn't get a full breath. And so just instinctively, you would push up with your legs. Well, in order to get you to die more quickly, they would smash your legs and keep you from being able to push up. And so that's what they go to do. Uh, they, they break the legs of men on either side of Jesus, but when they get to Jesus, they realize that he's already dead, which is a surprise because it would take a few days, usually, for crucifixion to kill a person. Usually, you didn't die in the same day that you were, in which you were crucified. And so, one of the soldiers grabs a spear, grabs a spear and stabs Jesus in the side to see, yes, in fact, is, is this guy really dead? Uh, and as soon as he does, John says, you see the, the blood and water begin flowing out. Uh, probably what's happened, of course, I'm not a nurse or a doctor, right? But what, what's happening is, right, the spear is piercing the pericardium, the sac of fluid around the heart. And as soon as the spear does that, right, the, the, the fluid and the blood flow out. Uh, and this, in fact, proves that Jesus is dead, That's why this is important, right? He's not asleep, he's not in a coma, he has no heartbeat at all. And then look at verse 35. John says this, which is kind of curious, he says, He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. John's probably talking about himself, and he wants his readers to know that he himself saw this happen. He's an eyewitness, which is a big theme for John in his book. Why? Why is that so important to him? Because in the very next chapter, he's going to tell us that Jesus is alive. In fact, he's going to tell us that he sees Jesus alive. And so he wants his readers to know, right? He's basically saying, guys, I watched him die. I saw the spear cut through his flesh and pierce into his side. I saw the blood and the fluid pour out of his side, down the spear, spill onto the ground. I was there. I watched it. It really did happen. He was dead. And he came back to life. And then he says this in verse 36. He says, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And there's two scriptures there. The first one, not one of his bones will be broken. This refers to the Passover feast, which is a festival being celebrated right now in, uh, not right now, but in the story, in Jerusalem. And the Passover, if you don't know, the Passover was a reminder, right? It pointed, when, when people celebrated the Passover, they were remembering Exodus. They were remembering how, how in Egypt, when God rescued them from slavery what he did was he when when god when god came to kill the firstborn of every family those families that were covered under the blood of the passover lamb those families were safe they were god's god's judgment passed over them that's what's that's what the people in jerusalem are being reminded of right during during this time and in Exodus 12 and in Numbers 9, we learn that the Passover lamb's bones could not be broken. For the Passover lamb to be a legitimate sacrifice, his bones could not be broken. So what is John saying? Here's the real Passover lamb. He's the one. He's, he's the one that all the Passover lambs that have ever been slain pointed to. Here is your sacrifice. And everyone who is covered in the blood of this unbroken Passover lamb, God's judgment passes over them. There is no judgment for those who are covered in Jesus. And this is, this is the gospel that the Reformation sought to recover. Uh, that, that salvation comes by faith, trust, alone, In Christ alone. There's no other sacrifice. There's no other work that has to be done to appease the wrath of God. And look, we we need to believe this again. Because if you're anything like me, you kind of wrestle with a low-level guilt. Just constant low-level guilt. Right? I I haven't done enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough. Christian... The Passover lamb is enough. The blood of Jesus is enough. The unbroken Passover lamb is enough to satisfy the wrath of God. Stop living with low level guilt. Not the labor of my hands. Can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite no? Could I could I be as passionate about the mission of Christ as I wanted to be? It would not be enough. Could my zeal no respite no? Could my tears forever flow? I I could not be sorry enough. It would not be enough. Could my zeal no respite no? Could my tears my tears forever flow? All for sin could not. Tone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's the gospel. That's happening here. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This reference comes from later in the Old Testament. Israel is long gone. Not long gone, but is is in shambles. She's broken. And God gives the prophet Isaiah a vision of things to come, a vision of the day to come. He says this in Zechariah 12.10. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on me, the Lord, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Did you catch that? God tells Zechariah, when they look on me, the Lord who brings their salvation, on him whom they have pierced. The one who is pierced to bring salvation is the Lord himself. God is the one who brings salvation, and he does it by allowing himself to be pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Zechariah, the, the picture in Zechariah is one of repentance. That when they see the one whom they have pierced, they mourn over their sin and they repent. And then hear this in Zechariah 13, 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and Power. Jesus is the pierced one, and out of, out of his piercings flow the fountain that cleanses sinners. Jesus dies, really and truly dies, to fulfill God's words. I mean, think about that. Jesus, Jesus has no breath in his body, yet he is still fulfilling scripture. Or scripture is still being fulfilled about him, even in his death. And God's words, God God wants to rescue sinners from their self imposed slavery and death. And there's one more thing. And it's these two men who bury Jesus. And they show us that God's kingdom is already winning even in the face of what looks like failure. Verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Joseph, uh, we learn, Joseph is in every gospel, and it's only there. We don't know anything else about Joseph. He shows up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was a member of the ruling council the same council that put Jesus to death. And it says in Mark's Gospel that he was looking for the kingdom of God. And John tells us that he was a disciple secretly because he feared his peers. He feared the other Jewish authorities. And so, here we have Joseph, up until this point, who has been afraid and has been in secret. And he comes out into the open. Right? Because... No one else really would have had the clout to go to Pilate, not Jesus' family. And Romans didn't give over bodies, especially uh, those who were convicted of treason. They kept those. Um, but just, so Joseph, Joseph puts his life on the line. He reveals himself to be a disciple of Jesus by going to Pilate, by showing great courage and saying, can I please have his body? He... Joseph of Arimathea has the ability, he has the clout to pull some strings, and he gets Jesus' body. But he has help. There's somebody else here, and we've already seen him before in John's Gospel. It's Nicodemus. Nicodemus was also a Pharisee, probably a member of the council, so he also was an influential religious leader. And if you remember in John 3, he came to Jesus by night. He did not come to Jesus in open day. When he came to talk to Jesus, the implication was he was hiding. He didn't want his friends to know. But now, the same Nicodemus who formerly had come to Jesus by night, now he stands next to Joseph. He comes out into the open, and he, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes was pretty generous. Uh, that was a that was a significant amount, and he comes out of hiding to honor uh, Jesus with a proper burial. And so here it is: even in death, Jesus is defeating his enemies. The same the same Jewish council that had put Jesus to death loses two members the same day. These men who had been afraid to be identified with Jesus were searching for the kingdom. Were anxious about it. Were thinking, hey, maybe there's something to this Jesus guy. They come out of the shadows. They're willing to be identified and ostracized. And that shows us that even in death, I mean, the resurrection hasn't even happened yet. And these two men come out of the shadows and they show us that God's kingdom is already beginning to claim enemy territory, that not even the council is safe from the work of Jesus. That's what, that's what the gospel does to people. It takes people, it takes fearful, people who, people who fear man, people who fear being ostracized, people who fear being wrong. Jesus takes those people and he transforms them and he brings them out of hiding so that even in death they can honor Jesus. Jesus receives a rich man's tomb, an empty tomb. No one else had been laid in it. Why does that matter? Because when, the, on the next day, excuse me, on the third day, the next chapter, when, when the women come to adorn the body of Jesus, they find the tomb empty. If there had been other bodies in there, there would have been some confusion. But the tomb is completely empty. No bodies to be found. Jesus was in that tomb all by himself. And since he was a state criminal and had been executed by crucifixion, he really would have defiled any other tomb anyway. He was supposed to be buried in the common grave with all of the other nameless people. But Jesus receives a king's burial in an empty tomb so that you and I would believe so that we would believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That He came and He was crucified and He died and was buried. And He rose again on the third day that our sins might be paid for and that we might have newness of life. Come to the Rock of Ages. Come to the to the open fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein where sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all, not some, all their guilty stains. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we rejoice in the hope of the gospel that even in death Jesus wins, that Jesus takes our death and defeats it, And that we have eyewitness testimony of these realities. O Lord, I pray that we would own Jesus. Even when all looks lost, like Nicodemus and Joseph, that we would own Jesus. And that we would do it because of your boundless grace and mercy. To cleanse us from all our sin and unrighteousness. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Stand and thank.